Good morning, everyone. My name's Rebecca. Uh, we're going to have our first Bible reading now, which is from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 25, verses 1 to 19. You can pay, find that on page 234, if you're using the Blue Bible. Um, so King Saul has relentlessly been hunting David. Last week, David finally had a perfect opportunity to get his revenge and kill Saul. But he refused and told Saul that he would never harm him because Saul was God's anointed king. Saul admitted that David was innocent and that God would make him king one day. And at least for a little while, Saul stopped trying to kill David. So we're reading chapter 25 from verse 1 to 19. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down to the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they'll tell you. Therefore, be favourable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water? and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers, and give it to men coming from who knows where. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, Each of you, strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal.
Good morning, church. I'm the third Rebecca for the morning, so it's been a morning of Rebecca's. Sorry. <laughs> Today we'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, found on page 937. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, on page 937. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, he will not, sorry, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for his very purpose is God, who has given us a spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away with the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Thank you, Rebecca and Rebecca. I'm James. Uh, if we haven't met, uh, and I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning. Uh, but first, greetings from Shirley Knight. Uh, those of you who know Shirley, she's, I saw her this morning at early church and she asked me to pass on uh, greetings to you from her. She's coming most mornings to early church, which is really, really great. Let's pray. Father, you have already promised in, us in this letter of 2 Corinthians that you are transforming us from one degree of glory to another as we behold the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. So we claim that message this morning, Father. We ask that uh, we would walk away changed after this morning, that through your word as we look at Christ and all he has done for us and achieved for us, you would be transforming us from one degree of glory to another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but sometimes as I pray, I'm wondering if God is there or if he's listening or if my words are just bouncing off the ceiling. Uh, do you, like me, long for a greater confidence in your relationship with him, a greater confidence of his love for you, a greater confidence of his purpose for you, a greater confidence that uh, he is listening carefully to every word you pray. you like that? A few weeks ago, I shared this earlier, I had a wonderful opportunity to talk about God, or at least to ask this person, one of my relatives, how they were going in their spiritual life. They had shown interest in the gospel in the past, and I missed it completely. I just lost confidence. I dropped my bundle. I lost my nerve and I said, zero. 
Uh, are you like me? Do you long for a greater confidence that in speaking to, to unbelieving friends and family? Uh, sometimes even just in the second half of church, perhaps I'm speaking with a, a brother or sister in Christ, but I, I feel this reluctance perhaps to go a little bit deeper, to, to raise what was in the talk, to delve a bit deeper about a touchy issue perhaps. Are you like me? Do you long for a greater confidence in speaking to your believing friends about the Lord? Sometimes in life we can have the confidence knocked out of us, perhaps by suffering, uh, disaster, grief, by rejection perhaps. Sometimes it can be a gradual thing. We can be worn down over the years, over the decades, and we find we just weren't as confident in our faith as we used to be. But the Apostle Paul says a remarkable thing in this passage. I hope you've still got open there, 2 Corinthians 5, page 937, if you've got a pew Bible. Did you notice what he says in verse 6? Remarkable thing. We are always confident. Always confident. A remarkable statement despite all the hardships that he went through. Death threats, imprisonments, physical beatings, disappointments, anxieties, persecution. Despite all that, if anyone would have had the confidence knocked out of him, you'd think it would have been the Apostle Paul. But no, he says, we're always confident. We're full of, we're always confident. We are full of confidence. What's his secret, do you think? Well, that's exactly what he explains to us in this passage, so that we can share that confidence. That's why he does it. How can we be confident? I hope you see in the outline there, in the info sheet, there's an outline of where I'm heading. And by the way, there will be time for questions and comments uh, towards the end. Firstly, notice we can be confident because we know that God is going to give us a new body, verse 1. We can be confident because we know that God is going to give us a new body. Verse 1, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Notice how Paul says, we know. He doesn't say we hope maybe one day possibly. He says, we know. He knows for certain that if he dies before Jesus returns, one day when Jesus does return, his old body will be resurrected, it will be completely renewed, fit for a new creation in eternity. How can he know that for certain? How can we know the future? We'll have a look back at chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4 and verse 14. Because we know, same words, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. He knows that he will be raised physically because the Lord Jesus has already been raised physically. Jesus was the first cab off the rank with many cabs to follow. The first of many. His resurrection is the guarantee of ours. Just as that first ripe 
Cherry tomato on the vine is the guarantee of many to come. So Jesus' resurrection, the guarantee of many to come, every believer. How can we know? Because the tomb was empty. And no one, not even Jesus' enemies, could produce a body. They never did. Because there was no body. He was alive. He was walking around. He appeared to his disciples and many others. Not just for a day, not just for a couple of days. For 40 days he appeared to them. He ate and drank them with them. He had a body. They touched him. That is how we can know. Later he appeared to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. This is how we can know that we will be raised. And notice, friends, the contrast between this present body and the one to come. This is good news. This body is like a tent. You know, a tent. One day you put it up today, it gets blown away. Uh, Next day you take it down. It's temporary. Like our bodies, temporary. They can die at any moment. Here one day, gone the next. Dead. But the new body will be permanent. It's like a building, a permanent structure compared with a tent. A building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. You see, these bodies are the result of human reproduction. Created by flawed human beings under the judgment of God, subject to death like everything else in this world. But not so the new body, not built by human hands, created by God himself and so fit for the new creation, not subject to death. Wow. Are you looking forward to that, friends? Are you looking forward to that? Come, Lord Jesus. By the way, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then can I say it is wonderful that you're here and I hope you keep coming and keep investigating. The reason I'm talking about Jesus' resurrection is that he died on the cross three days earlier. He died to bear sin and guilt. And if you will put your trust in him, his promise is that you are completely forgiven. And you will be able to share this confidence that the Apostle is talking about here. Because as believers, we can be confident now in our relationship with him, in our relationship, our dealings with others, because our future is secured. It's already taken care of. It's guaranteed. And it's going to be wonderful beyond our imagination. But what of our our trials now that do knock the confidence out of us sometimes? Well, says Paul, there's actually no need for that to happen. If we look at our trials in the right perspective, from God's perspective, our present groaning should make us long for the new body all the more. That's the second point. Our present groaning should make us long for the new body all the more. Have a look at verse 2. Meanwhile, literally that is in this tent, in our present bodies, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. While we are in this body, we are groaning, 
We are groaning because we are burdened. We are weighed down by all the difficulties of living in this fallen world under the judgment of God. People dying all the time. Grief, sadness at broken relationships. Sickness because our bodies are dying. What downhill from the age of 24 we've been hearing. 22, 24, something like that, a long time ago for me anyway. We're living with all the effects of selfishness and sin, ours and everyone else's, cruelty, selfishness, persecution. Uh, See, all these things and many more weigh us down. We groan inside, audibly sometimes. Jesus himself experienced this groaning. A man was deaf and could hardly talk, was brought to him. And Jesus looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh. Must have been audible, I take it, because people must have heard it. He groaned. Same word as in Corinthians. Jesus groaned with us when he saw the suffering in this world that people go through. That's Mark chapter 7, verse 34, if you want to look that up later, Mark 7, 34. But notice what Jesus, uh, what Paul says here back in 2 Corinthians. He says, along with this groaning goes a longing. Verse 2, we groan longing, and I take it the point is the groaning leads to the longing. When we groan and are burdened here, that makes us long all the more for the new body to come in the new creation. We're looking forward to it even more. Like if you're in prison, I haven't been to prison yet, but if you've been to prison, you'd know, right? Every extra suffering, every extra hardship would make you long for the next life, the next bit of your life, life on the outside. It's like that. We groan, therefore we long. But notice too, we're not just looking forward to leaving this body behind. The apostle wants to make that point. He says in verse 3, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. To be found naked is to be found with no body at all, a spirit, a soul without a body. Many people in the ancient world, some today, think that having any kind of body is a hindrance. It's a negative thing. It's a bad thing. Uh, This body creates desires that uh, damage our soul. It would be good to leave it behind. They look forward to a bodiless existence in eternity, a soul without a body. But the Bible says, no, no, no. Yes, we groan in our bodies now, but that's because of our rebellion and God's judgment against our rebellion as a human race. But in the beginning, when all was good, God gave us bodies. They were good. Bodily existence is a good thing. So we're not looking forward to a bodiless existence. We are ultimately looking forward to a renewed body. Now, that raises the thorny question. If we die before Jesus returns, what is our existence like between when we die and our new body at the new creation when Jesus returns? I don't know if you've thought about that much. What will our existence be like? This is often called the question of the intermediate state, the state between death for a believer and the new creation. Now, Christians differ on this. Some believe the Bible is saying that we won't actually be conscious of that time. We'll sort of die and we'll wake up in the new creation. That's called soul sleep sometimes for that reason. It's sort of as if we are asleep. 
Others believe the Bible is saying, no, 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 we are going to be with the Lord, but we'll be without a body for that period uh, until Jesus returns, when our old body will be raised and transformed into a new body. Now, it's good to try and understand what the Bible is saying on this. At the moment, I'm leaning towards the second one. Uh, there are some implications to, for this. Not an awful lot hangs on it. It's not an issue we need to argue over and divide over. It's not central to the gospel, but it's worth considering. The main point is, though, whatever our immediate state, our ultimate future is a renewed physical body in a renewed physical creation. And our groanings here should make us long all the more for that day. Suffering shouldn't knock the confidence out of us because we should expect it. It's the nature of living in this world, riddled with sin and under God's judgment. It's a normal part of living in this world. It shouldn't surprise us at all, but it should make us look forward to that new creation. So, friends, we know that we will be raised because Jesus was raised. But that's not the only reason we know. We also know because God has given his spirit as a guarantee. Next point, point number three. We know because we have the spirit as a guarantee. See verse five. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. If it was up to us somehow in our own strength to obtain this new resurrection body, we could have little confidence. (laughs) That is something that is beyond our power, isn't it? We cannot give ourselves a new resurrection body. Only God can do that. And we don't deserve it either, by the way. We don't deserve to have this new body in a new creation. But the good news is, we see in this verse, it's not up to us. It's not up to us. This is God's work. And in fact, This has always been God's plan for his chosen people. When he chose us who are in Christ before the foundation of the world, his plan that was that we would spend eternity with him in this new creation. It was always his plan. It was plan A. You see, friends, we are not in plan B. God's plan A has not been ruined by human sin somehow. No, this is plan A and plan A always was that his chosen people would be with him in the new creation forever. And he's given us a guarantee of that now by giving us his spirit. When you buy a house, you buy a house for a million dollars, you put down 100,000, don't you, if you can? You put down 100,000 as a guarantee, you'll pay the rest, right? You'll be very reluctant to walk away from that 100000 So it's guaranteeing, yes, I'm going to buy the house. Same with God. He's given us his spirit already as a guarantee of what is to come. Do you think that God is going to give us his spirit and then walk away from us? 
You know, like we might start a little handyman project in the backyard and get bored the next day and forget about it. No, no, no. God is not like that. What he starts, he finishes. He will bring to completion the good work that he's begun in you. But you might be thinking, James, how do I know that I have the spirit? That I have the guarantee? Well, I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, his word. The Old Testament prophets promise again and again that the spirit will come to God's people. And he does on the day of Pentecost. Secondly, our experience. Do you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Do you want to serve him? Do you love him? Have you come to church today actually wanting to hear his word and wanting to build up his people? Well, if any of those things are true of you, do you know why? Because God has given you his spirit. You would want none of that if God hadn't given you his spirit. So here's another reason for confidence about the future, friends. God has given us his spirit. So Paul goes on to say, as I said at the beginning, verse 6, Therefore, because of all this, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We can be confident even though we're still in this body, we're not yet with the Lord, We can be confident even though we're still walking by faith, not by sight. See, what does it mean to live by faith? Well, it means to live life trusting in the promises of God for the future. We trust in God's promises for the future. One day we'll live by sight. Great day. We'll see God as he is. We'll see his new creation as he is. Come, Lord Jesus. Yes, be much better. No more groaning, no, not weighed down. But until then, we live trusting in God's promise for that future. But that is not an uncertain life. That is the point. That is not an uncertain life because God is faithful. He always keeps his promises. You read right through the Bible. You see God promises. He fulfills it. He promises again. He fulfills it. He is completely trustworthy and he'll keep this promise as well so then what follows from all this let me step back a minute and take a bigger picture from the whole bible right back in the beginning god made us we have this life uh, from him in the first place but we rebelled but despite that he continued to love us he sent his son he forgave us He promised us eternity in the new creation, as we've been seeing today. He gave us his spirit as a guarantee for the future. What should follow from all of that? Well, what follows from all of that is that we should only have one goal in life. Only one goal is worthy of being a human being, and that is to please him, to please the one who has done all that for us so we get to verse 9 so you see so because of all i've said so we make it our goal to please him whether you're at home in the body or away from it is that your life goal 
to please him in everything you do? Did you wake up this morning with that as the goal of your day-to-day? To please God in the way you treat everyone, in the reason you do things? Is that your goal, your life goal? Is that your goal for tomorrow morning, on Monday, to get up, to go to work or whatever you're doing? Today, what I want to do is to please God in everything I do and the reason I do it. Is that why you come to church today? To please God in everything you do and why you do it. To have this as the goal of your life is incredibly liberating. It liberates you from just living to please yourself, which will make you miserable anyway. And it liberates us from living to please others, which makes us captive to the whims of everyone around us. It's a very liberating way to live. And it is the key to integrity and sincerity. This letter, this whole letter is a defense of Paul's integrity and sincerity. The topic sentence, I believe, is chapter 1, verse 12. Just flip back to that. Chapter 1, verse 12, page 935. Just the first half of the verse, actually. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. False teachers have come to Corinth. They have questioned Paul's integrity and sincerity. They've questioned his motives in the way he has treated the Corinthians. And he's saying here, I only have one motive in all I do to please God. I have not sought to please myself. I have not sought to please you, Corinthians. But I've sought only to please God. That is the key to integrity and sincerity for us as well, to live for an audience of one. But not only is pleasing God liberating, And the key to integrity and sincerity, it is also a very wise way to live your life. And that's because of verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul is talking about every believer here, including himself. He says we must all appear before the judgment seat seat of Christ but he's not talking about the heaven hell judgment he couldn't be because we already know God's verdict for believers in the heaven hell judgment if we trust in Jesus we have been declared innocent already that verdict is already in because of Jesus he bore our condemnation he will say in a few sentences look down to verse 21 God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No, this is talking about the judgment of the saved for the way we have served God as saved people. 
He says, each of us will receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. If we have spent our time as believers loving God and loving others, God will praise us for that. He will be delighted in those things and he'll let us know. If we haven't, if we've wasted our time not loving God and not loving others, we'll miss out on those rewards. We find this teaching uh, in a number of places in the scriptures. Uh, have a look, for example, at 1 Corinthians 3. Where's the... Oh, there, briefly. Do you get that? Hey! The apostle says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it, but each should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than that already laid which is jesus christ if anyone builds on this foundation using gold silver costly stones wood hay or stub or straw their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work if what has been built survives the builder will receive a reward if it is burned up the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. And then a little bit later in that same letter, a few sentences on, he wrote, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. He wrote this to the Roman Christians. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Jesus himself taught this in the parable of the talents. The master who represents God says to the servants who have served him well, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. What are the rewards? Well, we've seen from those verses, aren't we? The praise of God, the commendation of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. The quality of our work in other people's lives will be shown for what it is. What are the bad consequences? The absence of that praise. The quality of our work in others' lives will be shown for what it was. We are saved from hell by grace alone, but we will still be judged on how we've served the God of grace. Now, this is a very sobering truth, isn't it? It's very sobering to think that we will have to give account to Almighty God before Jesus Christ on his throne for how we have served him as believers. It's a very sobering thought, but friends, it's actually a good thing. It's actually something to rejoice in because you know what it means. It means that God cares about everything we do. And he even cares about why we do it, our motives in doing it. You see, a good teacher examines their students, doesn't he? 
He wants to see how they're going. He holds his students to account. A bad teacher doesn't care. Don't worry how they're going. God cares about how you're serving him. And that means that everything we do is meaningful. It would be meaningless otherwise if we're never brought to account and God didn't care, but he does. So friends, uh, let me wrap this all up very quickly. How can we always be confident in our relationship with God in our dealings with others? Well, because we know that our future is secure. Absolutely assured. Jesus has been raised physically. That is the guarantee that we will be. And he's given us his spirit already as a guarantee of what is to come. These are the precious and great promises that we can trust in because he is faithful. Before I pray about these things, are there any questions you'd like to ask or comments you'd like to make on things I've said this morning? Nothing too controversial. Father, we do thank you uh, for this passage. Uh, we confess that sometimes we do lack confidence and often we, we lack confidence because we have taken our eyes off the things that are unseen and we have fixed our attention just on the things that are seen in this world. So, Father, uh, we confess that and we turn away from that. Help us to focus on the great realities of this universe uh, thank you that you did raise your son. The tomb was empty. He did appear in a physical body. And thank you for the guarantee that gives us of a bodily existence in the new creation to come. Thank you for your spirit given now as a guarantee of that future as well. And so, Father, help us to trust in these great and precious promises and so to be confident in our relationship with you in our dealings with others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh.